Who is God and what's he up to and what does he want? These are some of the questions that we've been answering in the series God 101. My goal in this series was to sort of back up and answer some of the basic questions about the nature of God, about what he's like, because we refer to these things almost in second nature, but, but really there are people that may not know some of that. So it was good to step back and think through, okay, who is God and what does he want? These kinds of things. Now, we couldn't do anything but scratch the surface, but hopefully we're building a foundation that we can build some more important things later on as we grow together in our faith. Now, as I think about that, it, uh, today we especially want to think about what God wants from us. And expectations really do matter. We want to know what the expectations are on us in lots of areas of life. You know, it's not going to be long till we'll be thinking about school starting. Maybe some of you are already getting those supply lists and seeing schedules. And I know some of the teachers out there don't want to hear any of that, right? But it's happening. And when school starts, one of the things that I always wanted at the beginning of a semester was, okay, what are the expectations, right? What am I going to have to do in this semester? What papers do I need to write? What are the exams going to be like? Do I really need all these textbooks? Do I actually have to read all these textbooks? What do I need to do to succeed? We want to know the expectations. And that's true in lots of areas of life. I think it's especially true in our relationship with God. Because we know there's a lot at stake here, right? There's a lot that matters, and we want to get it right. I mean, we think about judgment and how important that is. We want to be right with God. But even beyond that, we have this sense of a God who created us, a God who gave us life and sustains that life, a God who blesses us daily, a God who sent His Son to die for our sins. With all that going on, we want to live a life that pleases God. We want to be engaged in God's mission on earth. So what are the expectations? I want us to think about that a little bit today because God does have expectations from us, for us and from us. So as we think about that, we're going to do what we've been doing throughout this series, which is to turn to the book of Exodus. Now, as I've said, the reason I chose Exodus, it's not the first book, right? And it's not the beginning of the story of Jesus that happens in the Gospels. But I chose Exodus because in Exodus, God really begins to open the book up in ways that he hadn't before and show his people who he was and who he is in ways that they had not seen in Genesis. And it sets the stage for virtually the rest of the Old Testament and even the story of Jesus. So if we get this right we can understand the rest of the story much better. And so we've been looking at some key texts in the book of Exodus and seeing what God was saying about himself. We talked about God's name, Yahweh, and how that said God was with his people and how he is with us. And we talked last week about how God has the power to save, and that's really what he's all about is saving his people. And this week, okay, let's turn the table. What does he want from us? Now we come to Exodus 20 today, we'll get there in just a minute, but we need to catch up on the story. And what we remember is last week we left the people of Israel on the far side of the Red Sea from Egypt. They had just escaped from the Egyptian army. God had saved them. They gathered for worship there. And then as a people, a nation that God has created, they set out for the land of promise, the, God, the land that God had prepared for them. God sustained them on that journey. God provided for them. And then God said, I want to I show you my glory. And so they gathered at Mount Sinai. Now, that should ring a bell. 
Because in the first week of this, les- of this series of lessons, we talked about Mount Sinai. Moses was there with, uh, with God himself. And God said, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. Moses had objections, and God said, the sign that this is going to happen is that you're going to gather my people in this place, at this mountain, for worship. Exodus 19 and following is the fulfillment of that promise and prophecy. Because there's Moses with the people of Israel worshiping God at that mountain. So God gathers the people. He tells them to purify themselves, to prepare themselves, which they do. He tells them to stay away from the mountain because of His holiness, which they do. And then God's presence is there. His glory appears on the mountain. And God speaks. And the words God speaks are in Exodus chapter 20. And we call them the Ten Commandments. And there are Ten Commandments there. Now, these commandments have been interpreted and used in countless ways over the centuries. We know that part of the way that they're used is that they're called sort of a distillation of everything else we see in the law. And in some ways, they're just that, right? They give the basics of the law. What we also see is, well, there's a whole lot more too, right? 639 commands. And so it's pretty important that we see it's just part of it. But it does sort of boil down what we see in the rest of it. They've been used as a symbol for, okay, this is the way of life we want our culture to live by, so we'll post it here and post it there. But beyond being used as a symbol, what does it say to us? Well, some scholars look at this, and I think rightly so, see this as God telling His people what He expects, but also continuing what He's done in the rest of Exodus, which is to show His people who He is. And His expectations of them only grow from his nature. So today as we look through these, I think we'll see God revealing himself to his people and then letting them know what he expects of them. This is the way God's word begins in this chapter. It's in verse 2 when God begins to speak and he says this, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. So this is the same God who just saved them, who gave them life, made them into a people, okay? And here he begins the expectations. Commandment number one, we can't cover them all in detail, but we're going to sort of skim across the surface. You shall have no other gods before me. The first command, you'll have no other gods before me. Now when we hear that, what we, what we sort of hear is, you can't have any other gods that are more important than me. That's part of it. I mean, we know in the ancient world that every group had their own gods. Some cities had their own gods. Households might adopt certain gods that were really important to them. So that was going on, but God says, you can't have any other gods before me. Now, what before me means really is in my presence. So your devotion is supposed to be absolutely and completely singular. You are to be devoted totally to me. No other gods at all. And that would be difficult because the people of Israel would be tempted and they would fall to them t- the temptation to worship other gods. And we might ask, well, why? I mean, if God had brought them out of slavery, if God had made them a people, God gave them a land, why would they worship other gods? Well, the answer is because of fear. They're afraid if they don't keep all the gods happy, then 
Make one God mad, maybe you don't have your crops for the year. Make another God mad, maybe you don't have children. And so they worship God, but let's throw a few sacrifices at these other gods just to be sure we're keeping them happy. God says, no. I'm the God that gave you life. I'm the God that keeps you alive. I'm the God that saved you. I'm the God that made you a people. You're to worship me and no one else. Now, the second and third commands are closely related to the first. The second is, begins in verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. Now, the context for that is, all the peoples that surrounded uh, the people of Israel, whether it was in Egypt or Canaan or anywhere else, would take a big log and they would carve an image of their God out of that log. And then they would take thin sheets of metal and hammer it on that image that they had created to make it look like it was made of precious metal. Then they would decorate it with maybe gems and they would take linens and garments, the finest that they had, and clothe their God. And then they might build a house for their God, right? A temple. And they would bring food for their God, an offering. Okay, they do all that with this God right where it is in the temple. And God says, not me. I don't want that. And we might ask again, well, well, why? If that was the way people worshipped in the ancient world, why did God say, I don't want you to worship me that way? Here's the reason. The people believed if they made this God and they fed it and clothed it and housed it, then, then that God owed them. It was a way of domesticating your God and getting what you wanted out of your God. In other words, it was a way of controlling your God. And God says here at the outset of the relationship he has with his people Israel, you will not control me. You will not domesticate me. You will not put me in a house and say that I have to do your will because you've taken care of me. That's not the way this works. It's not because God was opposed to art. It's because God is saying, you don't understand the kind of God that I am. You're not going to put me in a house and tell me what to do. Okay? The third commandment, closely related to that. Verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, again, when we hear that, we might be afraid, you know, maybe I've... I've used God's name sort of as a swear word, right? So that this is all about don't use bad language, especially with God's name. Well, that's pretty good policy, okay? I'm all for that, but I don't think that's what God's talking about here. Again, if we go back to the context that this was given in, the peoples of the ancient world would often use the personal name of their God. Like we have Yahweh here. Again, it's in all caps in our English translations to reflect that. The personal name that God gave that means to be, I'm with you. If they use that personal name in some kind of blessing or as a hex, then that God was bound to deliver on what they said. So if I bless someone in the name of God, God's got to bless them. If I curse someone in the name of God, God's got to curse them. And what God is saying here is, that's a misuse of my name. Again, 
You don't get to control what I do by some special use of my name. My name is not a magic word so that if you invoke it, I'm bound to do what you want me to do. That was really the misuse of God's name that we're talking about here. Now, again, is it good to be careful with the way we talk about God? Absolutely. But what God is saying here is, don't think you can control me by saying my name. Okay, if we keep going down the commands, we have a command to keep the Sabbath day. What's that about? That's about recognizing that life is more than work. Life is more than the accumulation of wealth. Life is more than the security that money gives us. Life involves at times rest. And sometimes life involves learning. Sometimes life is about family. So your life cannot be just about work. Though the Old Testament is clear that work is an important part of life as well. That's the fourth command. The fifth command, honor your parents. Now, that doesn't mean you obey your parents blindly. What this means is, and it says in this passage, obey your parents so it will go well with you in the land. Now we have to remember again, this was a time when not everyone had one of these. And not everyone could read. In fact, most people couldn't. And so the word of God was passed down orally. You teach your kids, you teach your grandkids what God's expectations are. They would have had a passage like this memorized. And so the only way it's going to go well for the people in the land, the only way everything is going to be passed down that they'll be obeying God is through parents and grandparents to children and grandchildren. So honor your parents, listen to them, care for them, learn from them. Then we come to commands six through nine. And they come off a little more quickly. They're all about the way that we relate to one another. These are maybe more familiar to us. Beginning in verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now if we think about it, we've got this first big set of commands that are all about the way that we relate to God, right? No images, don't use the name of God in vain, no other gods before me. Then we move into, in the Sabbath day, then we move into these commands that are about each other, your parents, okay? And then specifically, respect the people around you. Respect their body. Respect their sexuality. Respect their stuff. Respect their reputation. Be careful the way you talk about people. So all these things are in play. So it's about God, and then it's about how we treat other people. And then the last command, number 10 in verse 17, is the way we think about people. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now why is this command important? Because if we obey this command, if we get what that's about, being thankful for what we've got and being satisfied with what we've got instead of looking at what everyone else has, then we keep from disobeying commands 6, 7, 8, and 9 about killing, adultery, stealing, and lying. Okay? So if we get the heart right, then our actions are right. So if we look at this as a whole... And that's really all we can do. I mean, I've preached a series of lessons on the Ten Commandments. We could talk a long time about them. But today, as we look at sort of the sweep of what's going on here, what do we learn? And I think the answer is that we learn a lesson that's become very familiar to us as a church. Something we say pretty often. Love God. Love others. You see what God's doing here. 
God's saying, I'm a singular, powerful, active, engaged God that desires a relationship with my people. And what I'm calling you to do is to love me. And if we look at the way that word love is used in the Old Testament and even by Jesus, we understand that we're talking about love, honor, obedience, following God, devotion to God, a relationship with God. All those are present. And then that love of God is then translated into the way that we treat other people because they too are created in his image. He loves them just as much as he loves us. And so we are called to love them. That shows up in the respect for all their stuff and who they are. Love God, love others. Now, if that's the message to the ancient people of Israel, what does this say to us? What does this passage about to us say to us as those who follow Jesus Christ, who are people of faith in Jesus? What does it say to the church? As we think about that, it's, it's such a similar message, and it's a message that we've talked about before, that you know we can so easily get distracted. Okay, we know that we were created in the image of God. Scripture tells us that. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you see that. We see over and over the promise made that God's people in the Old Testament would bless all of humanity, fulfilled in Jesus. All right? So we are called to reflect who God is as a blessing to all humanity. Love God. But we get distracted. We get distracted sometimes by good things that God gave us. Sometimes we're distracted and family becomes more important than anything else. Sometimes we're distracted because money becomes more important. Or work, or sexuality, or pleasure, or entertainment. Whatever it may be. Those things just like the ancient peoples were tempted to follow other gods, those things become so important to us that we serve them rather than God. But here, in this passage, we're called to put God first. Jesus echoed that. Mark chapter 12, a passage that we've studied before, Jesus is asked, okay, Jesus, what's the most important thing? If we look at all the commands of the Old Testament, what matters most? The most important one, Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So if the Ten Commandments are a distillation of the whole law, these two verses, or three verses, are a distillation of the Ten Commandments. They are the basis for everything else. And they say to us the same thing that the Ten Commandments say. Scripture is amazingly consistent on this. The heart of following God, and for us as Christians following Jesus, love God, love others. And that applies to us as a church, a group of people who are here to serve God. It applies to us as families. It applies to us as individuals. This is our priority. The way that we obey the first commandment to have no other gods before Yahweh is to love him with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul. To give him everything we've got. And the way that we fulfill those last half of the commands, love others. It's just as clear to us today as it was to them 
thousands of years ago because we worship the same God. And he's calling us into a relationship just as he was then, only it's been transformed in Jesus. And so for us, as we come to the end of this God 101 series, what does God expect? And God expects us to dig in. He expects us to begin to understand who he is because his expectations are clear. To love him above everything else and because of that love we have for him, to love the people around us. Let's pray together. And we're thankful to you for the way that you've loved us. The way you've given us life, called us into being. And the way you provided for us in Jesus. And so God, we want to love you with everything we are. And we pray that you'll show us the right path to do that. And even though we take some things that you've given us and we sometimes make them into God's, and we pray that you'll help us to keep our devotion singularly focused on you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.